Well, folks, welcome back to Michael and Us. I'm Luke Savage. Will Sloan, and uh, we are using the same mic on this episode. Should just say that off the top. I don't know how the sound quality is going to be. It might be good, might be bad, might be vintage. Imagine you're listening to this episode on an old record you found in a crate somewhere. Imagine you're listening to like a Robert Johnson blues album. You know, it's a little crinkly, but it's got the soul. Yeah, sorry, it's my fault. I brought my microphone, but I left the cable uh, at home. So uh, we are in the studio with one microphone. We're in the Dalton McGinty headquarters this week. We're not at the Gore Lieberman studios and the Dalton McGinty headquarters only had one cord for one mic. So uh, that's the current situation. But listen, it'll be it'll be fine. We played it back. It sounded okay. So Luke, what's on your mind? Well, I've had a note for a few weeks uh, to talk about the state of Canadian politics on the podcast. Take off. <laughs> to the great white north. Boo! Now that that song is uh, that song is banned. I cannot emphasize enough uh, how much I hate it when <laughs> when 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 we use that. Although I know many listeners are a fan. But yeah, look. So uh, it's been a while since we've had a uh, I don't know an update on Canadian politics on this podcast. And I made a note a few weeks ago of a, a particular clip in uh, Question Period, which is, you know, the daily uh, grilling of the government that happens. It's Monday to Friday, really, it's Monday to Thursday, because no one important ever shows up on Friday. You know, it's always basically a performance, but it is a good way to get the tempo, uh, kind of get the get the mood, get a sense of kind of what the state of play is, what narratives, the, you know, the, the parties are trying to advance. Now, I'm going to play the clip in question uh, in a second, but, you know, the main piece of context to know right Right now is that the uh, conservatives have built uh, since the summer a very substantial lead in the polls. They are in some polls, you know, over 40 percent. The liberals are in a few polls like in the low 20s, like as low as they've been since the 2011 election, where they fell to third place for the first time in history. They're doing uh, really, really badly. Uh, the government uh, itself has just kind of moved from one scandal to another. Some of the scandals are big. Some of them are small. Some of them are just stupid and funny. Uh, the late latest one that, uh, you know, I think falls into the funny category is uh, Greg Fergus, who's the new Speaker of the House of Commons, who took over from uh, a, another Speaker that we discussed a few months back, who, you know, had to uh, had to leave the Speaker's chair after inviting, you know, a, a former veteran of the Waffen-SS into Parliament. Uh, ah, yes. Yeah, <laughs> remember that? Where's the Canadian <laughs> heritage moment on that? Yeah, yeah. But so he's gone. So this guy, Greg Fergus, who's like a long time, you know, backbencher, he's from Hall Aylmer, which is a seat that borders Ottawa, basically. Basically, you know, borders Ontario. It's in uh, it's in Quebec. You know, a chance of a lifetime for him. He gets to be Speaker of the House. He comes out of the gate strong. Uh, it was back in November. This isn't the scandal. This is just a funny thing that happened where there's a question period where he gets up and he's like, okay, folks, uh, before question period, uh, the Speaker has a, uh, you know, I, I, I have some things I want to say. Uh, so he starts reading this speech and the Conservatives are absolutely apoplectic. They're like, what the hell are you doing? It's like, it's in the standing orders. Question period begins at 2.15 p.m. every single day. Uh, and the speaker just keeps like trying to read his speech and, you know, people keep doing points of order. Like, can you stop delivering your speech? So this becomes like a protracted 30 minute thing. And then finally, the speaker is just like, look, I'm reading the speech. And the speech is just like, yeah, 15 or 20 minutes all about how uh, this house is a place of dignity and we need to all respect each other. And it's fucking bullshit. It sucks. I found myself like, OK, like, you know, I don't usually say this, but I I'm with the conservative benches here. Can we get on with the business of the day, please? <laughs> uh, but so the latest thing with uh, Greg Fergus, who, yeah, 
yeah, I was only been the speaker for like, I don't know, six or seven weeks at this point. You know, he's already kind of flailing. He's already uh, tried to assert his authority by being like, all right, I'm going to have a speech about how, you know, we have to rise above partisanship or whatever. And everyone's just like, just treating him like the fucking, you know, substitute teacher that he is, basically. <laughs> but but now he's gotten himself into more hot water because during the Ontario uh, Liberal Convention the other week where they picked uh, Bonnie Crombie, who's the mayor of Mississauga, to be the leader of the uh, third place Ontario Liberal Party. And uh, over the course of the convention, there was a video address from Greg Fergus in his speaker's office in full speaker's regalia, uh, paying tribute to the guy who was their interim leader while they were electing a leader or something. So, you know, the Speaker of the House of Commons is supposed to be independent, obviously. This was, you know, a very partisan video. He's like doing it in his like speaker's regalia from his speaker's office. If you know anything about what this role is, this is like one of the things you're definitely not supposed to do. Obviously, this isn't like, uh, this isn't a scandal of grand proportions, but this is just the kind of thing where every week now the government is dealing with something like this. They have scandals big and small. They have like in the summer, Trudeau saying, uh, oh, you know, housing's not actually a federal responsibility, so we're not going to do anything about it. People are understandably apoplectic about that. And then, uh, you know, uh, the government comes out in September and is like, actually, we've uh, we've huddled for uh, a whole week as a caucus and we've come up with the perfect solution that's going to solve the housing crisis. And then it's just like, I don't know, they're cutting some tax, some sales tax that developers have to pay. It's not going to build housing <laughs> at all. It's not going to lower the rents. And the Tories, meanwhile, uh, who are, you know, are now led by Pierre Polyevre, who's, you know, a much more ideological figure than the, you know, modern conservative party has really opted to uh, select as leader. I mean, I guess Stephen Harper, who's the only person from the modern conservative party who's uh, become prime minister, he was an ideological figure originally, but he kind of sublimated a lot of that stuff. Harper was known in his almost decade as prime minister as being a very effective uh, sort of disciplinarian of his conservative caucus. You know, he was a, a death by a thousand cuts kind of guy. He was a slow and steady wins the race legislator. Yeah, and it's not to say that, you know, he didn't govern from the right, but I mean, it was not uh, the kind of open, explicit ideological governance that I think a lot of people expected, particularly given his background, which very much was in the conservative movement. Um, but, you know, Polly Evera, who's a guy I've talked about before, is very much an ideological figure. Historically, uh, or at least in the case of the last few conservative leaders, you know, they always kind of run on the right when they're running for the leadership. And then when they get it, they just try to run as kind of these like boring, uh, you know, suburban urban dads, like, look how non-threatening I am. I'm going to cut your taxes. And, you know, uh, I'm not going to brandish, you know, social conservatism too much or anything like that. Typically, when conservatives lose elections in Canada, it's because at some point during their campaign, some policy idea gets out that hurts them. And the ones who are successful electorally are the ones who do not brandish policy ideas. Yeah, I mean, you're you're exactly right. And it's funny, like, you know, to think of an example of that, which is kind of like, I mean, it's interesting to think about how devastating this was in retrospect, and I'm not sure if you remember this well, but in 2008, during that federal election, which the conservatives were very much winning for most of the campaign, and I mean, they did win, but they didn't win the big majority that they might have. And one of the things that stifled their momentum were these comments that Stephen Harper made, uh, where he was asked about some cuts that, uh, you know, his government had done to public arts funding. And he basically said, look, you know, uh, average Canadians don't have, you know, much time for the arts or something like that. They don't care what people in a downtown Toronto gala are 
doing. I think were more or less his words. Maybe. I don't even remember it being as, as specific as that, but that was certainly the implication. Uh, anyway, there was a pretty significant backlash to this. Like, it came to sort of symbolize for many people, including, you know, some of the suburban voters that the, the Tories need to win. You know, it sort of became emblematic of like, oh, right, this is the Conservative Party. They're very, like, Americanized. You know, that's how people would have would have thought about it. Yeah, they're, like, uncultured. Like, they're basically, they're, they're the, you know, the Republican Party North or something I like that. I recall being in a Facebook group called Ordinary Canadians <laughs> Do Care About the Arts, yeah. Mr. Harper. Yeah, you are dead wrong. Yes, I remember that, that group. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so that, that was the kind of thing. You know, this was a, an example of Harper, you know, the ideology really coming through and it really undercutting him. Now, Pierre Polyev is somebody who, during his campaign for the leadership, you know, he was very ideological. He was, I've mentioned this before, but he was doing things like campaign events where he'd buy shawarma with Bitcoin and stuff. He told people to uh, invest in Bitcoin so they could, quote unquote, opt out of inflation. And then like a week later, the entire crypto market tanked. But since then, he's really perfected this kind of, uh, I don't know what to call it. I mean, I don't want to give him too much credit, but it's a kind of a populist style that I think is a little bit heterodox for right of center political leaders in Canada or elsewhere. And that's going to come through in this clip which I think is quite emblematic of what the debate in this country, between the liberals and conservatives at least, is at present. It's impossible to believe anything this prime minister says. First, when he gave $15 billion for one battery plant, he said there'd be no foreign workers. It was all a rumor. And then he said it would be one. And then his minister said there'd be a few. Now the company says it will be 900. This is $15 billion, $1,000 in cost for every single family. And now they're giving the money for 900 workers to do foreign workers to do a job that the Canadian Building Trades Union said could be done by our people at a cost of $300 million of lost wages for our union workers. Will the Prime Minister release the contract so we find out how many Canadian tax dollars are going to foreign replacement workers? The right honourable Prime Minister. Again, Mr. Speaker, I'm going to have to uh, correct the facts uh, in this House of Commons, given uh, what the Leader of the Opposition continues to say. 2,300 local Canadian construction jobs and 2,500 permanent Canadian jobs when the Stellantis plant like, uh, is completed. like the Opposition needs to respect the facts or whatever. The Prime Minister has forced 7 million Canadians to cut back on their diet to a point where they are no longer healthy. This Prime Minister has forced Canadians to cut their budget for food and therefore a record smashing two million people are lined up at a food bank every month around corners in ways that we haven't seen since the Great Depression. That's the austerity he's opposed on Canadians. Now he wants to quadruple the carbon he's tax. He's so good at this. He's going to win the fucking biggest majority. It's our like, food. We have a common sense like, conservative bill, C-234. Will the Prime Minister stop blocking this bill in the Senate, let it pass so that our farmers can produce food and our people can afford to eat it? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, if the Leader of the Opposition actually cared about Canadians being able to afford their food, uh, they wouldn't have dragged their heels uh, on the passage of C-56, uh, that is increasing competition in the grocery sector. Uh, but indeed, Mr. Speaker, there are a lot of factors that, uh, that deliver higher food prices, uh, not just for Canadians, for people around the world. And one of the key ones is Russia's continued illegal invasion of Ukraine, Mr. Speaker. On this side of the House, we we can affirm clearly that we will stand with Ukraine with everything necessary for as long as necessary. As we saw last week, no conservative politician can say the same. 
<laughs> Kitchen table issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The honorable yeah. leader of the opposition. Actually, we are, we are the only party that has stood with Ukraine, Mr. Speaker. Oh yeah, this is this is one of their latest funny things. Is they voted against this like this Canada Ukraine free trade agreement because they said it had a carbon tax in it, which like I don't think it did, but it's just a very funny objection to have. Encampments, uh, forcing two million people to go to a food bank. These are the problems here at home at the kitchen table. He is so desperate to talk about anything else that he avoids talking about what's happening in our own country. So will he answer the question? Will he take his tax off our farmers so our people can afford to eat? So it just goes on and on like that. And if you watch Question Period every day, which, I mean, I don't, but I check in on it every so often, that's pretty much what the debate is at the moment. And I mean, to be clear, uh, these are two politicians, uh, Justin Trudeau and Pierre Polyevre, that I uh, I don't like. But I think that clip is uh, pretty emblematic of the state of things and also of how effective Pierre Polyev uh, really is with this shtick. You saw him do a number of things there. Right off the top, you saw him uh, invoking, you know, union jobs, which he's uh, you know, using as kind of a cudgel to, uh, you know, attack the government subsidies of some battery plant in uh, in Windsor or something like that. You saw him talk about food banks, uh, food bank usage, which is up considerably. You saw him talk about austerity and how austerity is something that's being imposed by the government. Now, I think these innovations are all basically rhetorical. Pierre Polyev's agenda is the exact agenda you would expect uh, a figure with his background to have. You know, he's against public spending. He thinks public spending... Uh, of most kinds is to blame for inflation and he wants to cut it back. He's had a long career uh, opposing, you know, most aspects of the welfare state in one way or another. But, you know, what he's doing is something that uh, conservative politicians might have figured out a long time ago, which is that, you know, if you actually just acknowledge, you know, hardship, financial, economic, and otherwise, uh, if you acknowledge suffering, particularly at a time like this, when, uh, I mean, inflation absolutely is out of control. Food is, uh, is ridiculously expensive. The liberal don't have uh, solutions to any of this stuff. Uh, instead, as you saw in that clip, you know, Justin Trudeau's, his instinct was to try to somehow pivot to Ukraine for some for some reason. It's to talk about how, you know, well, we're the party of the facts and the other people, you know, the others across the aisle, they're, uh, they're doing conspiracy theories. You hear a lot of stuff from uh, the liberals about, uh, ah, yes, uh, more uh, Republican style uh, attacks from the party opposite, all that kind of stuff. And the thing is, they don't really have a response to Polyev's criticism that's effective. I mean, they basically share the same fiscal orthodoxy. Like with their budget statement a few weeks ago, all the rhetoric around that was, well, we have to be fiscally responsible. We have to do, you know, belt tightening because we all know that too much public spending causes inflation. And it's like, all right, great. Thanks for that. Uh, you've just conceded the entire right-wing argument. Like you've put yourself in a position where you're going to be arguing that uh, these like half measures you've done, these like tiny checks in the mail that have gone out to like very small numbers of people one time, you know, means tested by income. You're putting yourself in a position where you have to argue that that is like serious action on the affordability crisis. Or that thing Trudeau alluded to in that clip where he's talking about, oh yeah, why is the party opposite? Why are they obfuscating in the Senate our bill that's gonna like, I don't know, uh, increase competition in the grocery sector? And it's like, look, I haven't read the bill but I don't think it's going to do anything about the price of, of, of bread or milk. Let's, let's be real. 
So once you've conceded that ground, I mean, you've basically done you've basically done their work for them. And half the time what Polly Evera uh, spends his questions doing in question period is, you know, he'll just pick something that's either a tax or, you know, a, a, some item of, of public spending. And he'll say, well, this is what's making food expensive. This is what's making rent expensive. And that might not be true. But if you're just an average person who receives correctly a sort of ambient sense that, uh, yeah, our government's kind of a spent force. And uh, yeah, I don't really like Justin Trudeau very much. And, you know, what have they done for me lately? And then, you know, the leader of the opposition is acknowledging the fact that there's, you know, millions of people using food banks in one of the richest countries in the world. I would say that gives the conservatives a uh, pretty distinct edge. And I, I would say Polly Evera is uh, showing a lot of uh, a lot of discipline in terms of uh, maybe reining in some of his own instincts that are less effective and will be less well received. Uh, the election, I should say, may not be for another year and a half or even two years. It may not be till, uh, what, 2025, possibly 2026. I'm forgetting now exactly when the liberals have to call it. I think it's 2026 because the last election was in 2021. Now, the government may be defeated before that. There is a confidence and supply arrangement between the NDP and the liberals at the moment. But the NDP could pull the plug on that and force an election along with the conservatives and the Bloc Québécois, who are uh, the third largest party in parliament at the moment. But the odds are there isn't going to be an election for some time. And I think what the liberals are hoping for, I think kind of the the only thing that, uh, well, they think may save them, I guess we'll see. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day uh, who works on the Hill, and I thought he articulated their thinking very well. By 2025, 2026, you know, people will have had a lot more time to think about Donald Trump, okay? <laughs> Donald Trump's going to be a lot more visible for the next year or so. He may be reelected. And let me tell you, if Donald Trump uh, was reelected, our liberals, I mean, they'd be pumping their fists in the air. They'd be, they'd be so happy because then they can just run against him. And I think that's kind of the last thing they have in their pocket. That's them smashing the emergency glass and just like smashing the Trump button over and over again. At this point, I'm kind of doubting that even that can save them, but I think that's what they're thinking. And uh, in the meantime, we got another like year and a half, two years of debates exactly like the one you've just heard. And I, I for one, am curious to see how far the liberal poll numbers can sink. My dear Josephine, I've just won a great battle. But those in power will only see me as their sword. I suggest you take the throne as king. Shall we vote? This vermin has routed Europe. I follow in the footsteps of Alexander the Great and Caesar. Will you join me? Napoleon. Our movie on this episode is one that Luke has been insisting that I watch for weeks now, despite <laughs> my protestations. <laughs> I had very little interest in watching this movie. For a while, my excuse was, oh, I'm going to go see it with my girlfriend. She wants to see it. And then and did you? a week went by and then a week went by and everyone's busy and everyone's busy. And then more and more movies keep coming out <laughs> and we keep being like, boy, when we get a chance to see a movie... <laughs> Be nice to go see something that's not Napoleon, right? <laughs> so you know what I did? I finally bit the bullet, went all by my lonesome to see Napoleon at its 70 millimeter run here at uh, Toronto's Varsity Cinema. Now, you insisted that I see this movie because you feel very strongly about it. <laughs> I, I dreaded seeing it because it's by Ridley Scott, who specializes in lugubrious films. <laughs> he does a good job making movies that I don't like very much. <laughs> And I anticipated that this would be a rather dreary two and a half hour plus movie. 
And and boy, were you wrong, because this movie's great. Um, and <laughs> another difference between you and me is that you go in with a lot of knowledge about Napoleon. I went in with very little knowledge. <laughs> I know that in the 90s, in the Guinness Book of World Records, when you would search smallest penis, he was listed because um, apparently his penis was removed and well like allegedly sold, someone owns sold, it or something, sold at right? auction right which i think is unfair <laughs> i think when it was an actual part of his body and was like not <laughs> had had like moisture and living flesh and such oh. it was probably bigger so uh, he has my sympathy in that regard but otherwise <laughs> i don't know i don't know a great deal aside from just the greatest hits uh josephine the battle of waterloo <laughs> you know <Yeah>. etc <laughs> So I was, you were going in this movie as someone interested in yeah, Napoleon. Uh-huh. I was going in as uh, someone who wanted to watch just a good movie, <laughs> just a story, just a story that was interesting and that had an interesting take uh-huh. on a well-known historic figure. Uh, to me, it was, it was not, I did not care for it, <laughs> but I will say that individually there were many scenes that I found compelling. <laughs> the problem is when you put all those scenes together, you have a movie that is rather less than the sum of its parts. And I I left it thinking, why did he want to make this movie? Yeah. Why did Ridley Scott, what was it about Napoleon that Ridley Scott wanted to express? And I think there are a lot of mixed signals in this movie. On the one hand, it is sort of a straight ahead great man biopic with epic action scenes that, you know, goes through the major signposts of his life as if by checklist. And on the other hand, it has moments when it seems to be signaling towards uh, wanting to do something almost Barry Mm Lyndon-ish, wanting to almost make a bit of a joke about Napoleon, wanting to be a little more satiric or a little more um, God's eye view of the whole thing. And I feel like he fails to coalesce those two competing instincts. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's true that I have uh, kind of insisted for the past few weeks that we do an episode on this, uh, but that's not just because this movie kind of ticked me off. It ticked me off because uh, it's not a very good movie and also because I think its politics, insofar it has them, are uh, are pretty bad. But I also think uh, this movie is a very suitable candidate for discussion on this podcast because it's very much the kind of movie where, uh, you know, it's auteur Ridley Scott. You know, he made very clear, uh, I'm not interested in history. This has been his press tour, basically, is saying how much he doesn't care about the facts. He said he he didn't need historians, and then he said, uh, when I have issues with historians, I ask, excuse me, mate, were you there? No? Well, shut the fuck up then. So that's kind of how he approached this subject, which, you know, is a little bit odd for, like, you know, you're talking about the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, so possibly, like, the two most studied things in history. And I don't know, like, if you're gonna not take, uh, you know, the history seriously, I think you're obligated to do something interesting with not taking it seriously. Yes. And he doesn't, he doesn't do that either. Well, there are a couple of different types of biopics, if I can paint with a really broad brush. There's a sort of Richard Attenborough style of biopic, you know, Gandhi, Chaplin, movies like that, where basically the thesis is get a load of how great this guy was. Mm-hmm. And here are all the famous scenes of his life where you see how great he is. Then there are there are some biopics that basically use the person as raw material to make a point that's broader than the person. Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette is an example of that, where I don't know uh, how accurate it is <laughs> to Marie Antoinette's story. Uh, it, it makes some very obvious artistic liberties. But really what it's, it's giving you a, it's giving you a, a 
depiction of somebody who was sort of cloistered in power. Yeah. And then at the end, when the French <laughs> Revolution happens, it sort of comes as a surprise because she's completely like isolated from all politics. Yeah. And there's a broader point to that. Um, and this movie, I mean, really, it falls more in the Attenborough camp. It's more a sort of series of scenes about like how cool this guy is, except the guy in the middle of it is like kind of a dork, Mm -hmm. uh, at least as played by Joaquin Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And there are certain touches every now and then, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but it ends on a note, the final text in the movie, which we'll get into later, had me thinking, wait. Is that what this movie was about? Well, yeah. So, I mean, to finish my point from before, I mean, that's why I think this movie is, you know, very much a suitable candidate for discussion on our podcast, because, you know, in many ways, it's just incoherent. It's, you know, the incoherent product of, you know, a guy like Ridley Scott not really taking the subject that seriously and just thinking like, all right, I'm going to I'm going to just mash together sort of like different bits of received wisdom about how certain uh, events went down. I'm going to produce something that's, you know, kind of just for entertainment purposes. And I'm, you know, I'm not here to satisfy any like historians, so-called or whatever. But the result of Ridley Scott's approach here is a film that just ends up kind of channeling various things that are in the air uh, for a guy like Ridley Scott. So a guy who has clearly absorbed, you know, the sort of mainstream British conventional wisdom about the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars and the figure of Bonaparte himself. uh, And who also, as far as I can see, has kind of absorbed some of the things that are in the air, the sort of things that you've heard rich liberals say ad nauseum since 2016 about. Uh, you know, how scary mass democracy is and how really mass democracy is what produces tyranny in the first place. And we should be very, uh, very skeptical of all those things. Well, that begins in this movie with the opening titles of the film. What is the introductory text of the film? Yeah, so it begins, uh, 1789, revolution in France. The French have become disillusioned by food shortages and widespread economic depression. Anti-royalists would soon send King Louis XVI and 11,000 of his supporters to to a violent end and then set their sights on the last queen of France, Marie Antoinette. Meanwhile, an ambitious Corsican gunnery officer named Napoleon Bonaparte seeks a promotion. So we then see uh, the execution of Marie Antoinette, and it's very much like, I feel like Ridley Scott is pretty horrified by Marie Antoinette's execution. There are a number of uh, liberties he's taking uh, in this sequence. I mean, I'm going to have to be careful here because my instinct throughout this movie was just to point out how inaccurate everything was, and I know there are limits to doing that. To be clear, I think the main problem with this movie is that it isn't very good. Uh, I think it would have been perfectly possible for a movie with the same uh, sort of reactionary idea of the French Revolution. You know, such a movie could have been good, uh, and this one just isn't. But it's very hard to discuss the politics of this movie without discussing some of the things that Ridley Scott decided to omit or kind of uh, treat in a way that is contrary to what actually happened. And I mean, here, you know, he's, he's coming out strong right out of the gate, because Marie Antoinette's execution happened several years after 1789. There was actually a period of constitutional monarchy in France for several years. The sort of move done in these title cards where it's like, oh yeah, uh, the anti-royalists would soon send, you know, the king and, you know, the queen and their uh, supporters to their violent end. And it's like, I, I do feel like it's not pedantic for me to point out here, you know, the king and queen were actually executed for treason. They were arrested during the, I'm forgetting what it's called, It's re- the, the episode is referred to, you know, the, the flight to Valenay or something, someone more pedantic 
Danik than me can remind me in the DMs how you pronounce the name of that town. But basically, they were arrested trying to flee to the border. They weren't trying to flee to the town. The way that episode's referred to is pretty misleading. They were caught there uh, because they were going to meet a foreign army at the border, which was going to, you know, go help them reinstate absolutist monarchy. And actually, the government at the time, the National Assembly, obligingly kept this a secret for a while because they knew it was a trump card they could use against the royalists later. And eventually they did. But I don't know, the, the way this film omits any of that history omits the fact that, you know, the, the, the king of France was actually plotting against the nascent revolutionary government, you know, and the new constitution that uh, was created after the storming of the Bastille. I mean, leaving that out achieves quite a lot. And I don't think, uh, I don't think any of it's good. Now, I'm curious what you think, well, of the fact that, uh, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte actually does appear in the scene, right? We see uh, Marie Antoinette being led to the guillotine. Uh, and then, you know, the, the, the braying mob is cheering, they're throwing vegetables and stuff like that. And then as the executioner holds her head up aloft to this, you know, braying Parisian mass, uh, Napoleon is just looking there, you know, Joaquin Phoenix, you know, 50 years old, playing Bonaparte, uh, who was, was, of course, not actually at the execution at, uh, at age 21. Ecstatic truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, what do you think the ecstatic truth is here? Because... I wasn't entirely sure what the sort of ambivalent expression on Joaquin Phoenix's face is supposed to achieve exactly. Well, putting aside Phoenix's acting, of which there is more to say, there is some of that opening text that says something like, uh, France is driven by misery into revolution and by revolution into misery. And in Bonaparte's presence in that scene, like he's clearly saying, well, there's a power vacuum here that needs to be filled. And this mob's anger can be harnessed into uh, my own glory. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, this movie, which is allegedly going to be released in a longer four hour version on streaming, the version we saw was what, 160 minutes or so? Something like that, yeah. But Sir Ridley is preparing a much longer version, which I'm sure will fill in some of the gaps. But Napoleon ascends to power fairly briskly. Uh, in the theatrical version. Yeah, I mean, there's some stuff with the reign of terror and you don't see the Jacobin ascendancy, but you do see a guy who I guess is supposed to be uh, Robespierre. Although again, I mean, it's a pretty silly depiction of Robespierre, but this sequence, which like everything else in the film is just thrown in there and then left behind very quickly, does seem to be a sort of mashing together of various bits of received wisdom about, you know, the reign of terror. And then also, you know, we see Robespierre sort of being deposed and he tries to shoot him himself and then he accidentally blows off his jaw. I mean, that's a real thing that happened, or at least it's a real thing that has been discussed. He did sustain some kind of injury to his jaw during these events, although it's not clear if it was self-inflicted or if it happened in a gunfight or something. By the time he actually went to the guillotine, by the way, he was like barely alive. And I think uh, the people who arrested him were kind of uh, upset about that. But anyway, yeah, this is this is all glossed over pretty quickly. And then the next thing we see, which of all the liberties taken with history in the movie, this is the one that I think is probably most in the service of the film's underlying conservatism. Uh, The next thing we see, there's a title card that that gives us as context, I think only uh, the words Royalist Uprising 1795. Now, this is a very famous episode. I can't remember how the film refers to it. Uh, It might just refer to it by its date on the Gregorian calendar, but to Ridley Scott and all other Ancien Regime Philistines, that's 13 Vendemiaire to you. Thank you very much. But that's how this is referred to usually, 13 Vendemiaire. Now, in the film, 
film, what we see is basically a mob of people kind of protesting. These are the royalists, presumably doing the royalist uprising. It's not very many people. I don't know. It's what, 30, 40, 50, 100. They're not really armed. They have pitchforks and they have, you know, uh, torches and things like that. And then Bonaparte uh, basically just orders his troops to fire grape shot into this crowd and they're just horrifically mutilated. And I guess this scene is just sort of in service to the way that the film imagines the Bonaparte character. Like he has no arc. He's just kind of the same throughout the whole movie. He's just a weirdly horny, laconic guy who is kind of coldly brutal and just approaches all situations with a sort of stoic resolve and is a man utterly without charm or charisma. Yeah, so I think this is at the center of my problem with the movie. I mean, the beating heart of the film, the emotional through line is the relationship with Josephine, which as it begins, Josephine played by uh, Vanessa Kirby. And I I do think the two actors are quite good in some of their scenes together. Mm -hmm. And there's a sort of emotional reality created in those scenes that is convincing. When he meets Josephine, she has a past. She is, uh, seems a rather Machiavellian figure. She's a a social climber. Well, yeah, her her husband was executed during the Reign of Terror. She she does what she has to do. That's the Mm -hmm. implication. And he's attracted to that. He finds that fascinating. And I mean, y'all know about Napoleon and Josephine, (laughs) a famously uh, tempestuous relationship, (laughs) the ups and downs of which are the sort of emotional arc of the film. The movie cuts back and forth between their relationship at home, which is always rather stormy, uh, marked by a lot of cheating, by her physical inability to bear a successor. And then you'll see Napoleon, you know, in some battle somewhere, conquering some foreign land. He, he, go, he goes back from Egypt. There's like, you know, we spent five minutes in Egypt or something. He goes back from Egypt because he finds out Josephine was having an affair. In reality, I mean, she was having an affair, but Napoleon also had a very well-publicized affair when he was in Egypt. I mean, I guess that's the kind well, of thing. Well, they, he... they do talk about that a little bit uh-huh. in that scene where the two of them are together about, about both their affairs. Uh-huh. Sir Ridley is not that interested in Napoleon's political or military <laughs> genius. Like you'll see these scenes. I don't think he's interested in anything about him. It's it's unreal. Well, you'll see epic battle scenes. <laughs> and the epic battle scenes, I think, contrast very awkwardly with the domestic scenes, which are often played for laughs. Yeah. Uh, are the scenes between Napoleon and Josephine, this is where like Joaquin Phoenix is at his poutiest. I think he's kind of good in some of those scenes, but, <laughs> but he's still doing that same note when he's like leading his military. The movie doesn't convey, okay, well, what about this guy was able to command the loyalty of the French army to such a degree that late in his life, he commandeered the army, caused them to do a coup against the king that deposed him. I don't think Sir Ridley communicates that or Joaquin Phoenix does either. But like, you'll see these scenes where he's just conquered a land or he has an epic battle scene. And there's not a lot of interest in like, you know, any of the technical side of that. Like, okay, how did he conquer this army or that sort of thing. Sir Ridley is interested in scale. He's interested in uh, the glory of the defeat or the glory of the victory. And we get a lot of scenes of Napoleon sort of gloating after one of his victories. What I expected this movie to do and what it didn't really was show how the relationship with Josephine impacted his governance. 
that seems to be what it's gesturing toward. It's, it's kind of an old expression that she was the great woman behind the great man or something. I thought that was the received wisdom that this movie was really going to channel. It was really going to put those domestic scenes in conversation with the military scenes, and I don't think it did. Yeah, I completely agree. I guess to be fair to uh, Sir Ridley here, I mean, this is a very difficult subject. It's very difficult to make a movie about Napoleon Bonaparte or about this period in history at all. Partly because, you know, this period is approached very differently. It's thought of very differently in uh, different parts of the world. People have very different relationships to this part of the past that, you know, in many cases are traceable all the way back to, you know, what the different loyalties and alliances, you know, between different nations, between, you know, different parts of the intelligentsia, between the aristocracy and the middle classes, even between, you know, how, you know, French propaganda talked about one event and how British propaganda might have talked about the same event at the time. So there's a lot of baggage that comes to this subject. But I actually think if Ridley Scott had just done like the straightforward Napoleon great man biopic, it would have been better than this. Because at least then the Napoleon character would have had some kind of depth. He would have been legible in some kind of way. Like a lot of the worst stuff about Napoleon Bonaparte is stuff that's in that vein. It's just pure sort of adoration. It's pure like great manism. You know, it's there's no interest in the contradictions of Napoleon Bonaparte. There's no interest in the complexities of the period. It's just, uh, no, history on horseback, which is the phrase that, you know, Hegel famously used about Napoleon Bonaparte. It's just, watch as one man, you know, remakes the world in his own image. And isn't that cool? And I got to say, that's pretty boring and dull. And it's a very male and adolescent perspective on Bonaparte as well. But like, it would have been better than this. Like you watch this movie, which as Will has said, just kind of jumps from one sort of famous episode of the Napoleonic Wars to the next and gives you no sense of like, yeah, why would anybody ever follow this person? What is it? What even motivates him? Right. Like, like, what is his vision? And that's where I thought, I thought the movie was going to imply that he's doing this all for Josephine. I thought it would create a direct dialogue between these two strands and it, and it doesn't. And I'm not saying that would be good or accurate. <laughs> it would just kind of coherent. Make, it would make sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there is that, uh, that really crude way that it does that. Or I guess shortly after they've met, there's that cringeworthy line she has where she sort of opens her legs and she says, you know, if you look down, you will see something that surprises you. And after you see it, you will never be I, able to I stop thought, thinking about it. I thought that it. was going to be the thesis statement for the <laughs> film. I thought, and really, really the only major effect it has is that he comes back from Egypt prematurely. And then I time. guess he, and it, it, uh, the film also implies that he escapes from Elba and like... He wants the, to reclaim what is his. Well, the hundred days happen partly because he wants to get back to Josephine. Right. But so, I mean, look, the film just, it goes from one episode to another. There's Egypt, there's the Battle of Austerlitz, there's the Battle of Borodino during Napoleon's invasion of Russia, and then there's sort of the subsequent, you know, the famous uh, retreat of the Grande Armée after. There's the Hundred Days in Waterloo, uh, and then he's on St. Helena, and his last words were, France, the army, Josephine. Uh, those were reportedly uh, Napoleon Bonaparte's last words, I believe. And then the film ends, and there's just like a title card with like, here's a bunch of battles Napoleon fought, and here's how many uh, people died in them. Which is a very Barry Lyndonish flourish, and you were mentioning how the movie would have been more coherent if it had followed just the straight ahead adolescent great man template. There were times when it was gesturing towards the opposite. I know that Ridley Scott obviously likes Barry Lyndon because he made The Duelists. Which yeah, is, which I saw recently and it's really, it's really good. good. Yeah, really good. Yeah. And, and this movie <laughs> oftentimes seems to be gesturing towards a thesis that is, how is it that this absolutely pathetic man, <laughs> this pouty, lovesick uh -huh. loser, conquered the whole world? And in that last text, which is very Barry 
Gary Lindenish mm-hmm. having the death tolls of all the wars mm-hmm. and then saying over three million dead. A more cynical, jaundiced filmmaker would have had the thesis of what a tragedy that all these people died for this man and his preoccupation with Josephine, you know? It's funny because I do kind of think that was the thesis of it, don't you? It Kind of, but then what about all those epic battle scenes? It's like he wants to make Barry Lyndon, but he also wants to make Gladiator. Oh, no, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah, when Will saw the movie, that was uh, the first thing that he texted me, and I think that's exactly right. But look, I want to go back to uh, 13 Vendemiere, which I brought up before, because I think scenes like this are really the key to understanding, like, on what foundation is does this film really rest? Ridley Scott does not have a coherent take on this period or on the character. He doesn't even have a coherent vision for what this movie is supposed to be, and it's, again, not clear to me why exactly he made it. What he does have is certain conventional wisdom from basically the English-speaking world about, you know, the Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolution. And this is why I ultimately find the film kind of an interesting object, even though I don't think it's very good. As I said before, any movie, any uh, fictionalized depiction of this period, there's a lot of historical sediment that whoever creates it is going to have to kind of pick through. Because as I said, I mean, this is just such a contentious period. So much about it is still so hotly debated. And the thing is, because Ridley Scott is so deeply uninterested in history, what the film ends up doing is just lazily resting itself on bad Anglosphere received wisdom about the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, which actually has very deep roots. So the film is interesting to me for that reason. Uh, Ridley Scott is not somebody who I think is ever like, he hasn't read Edmund Burke, right? He hasn't read Thomas Carlyle's book on the French Revolution, which I've got right here. I'm going to read something from that at the end of the episode, which I think is germane to this discussion. But he's absorbed various ambient discourses around those things nonetheless. You know, the French Revolution to this day is a very pregnant period in human history. Edmund Burke basically invents modern conservatism because he's so upset by the French Revolution, you know, and he writes uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France, which is a foundational text of modern reaction because he's so upset by the French Revolution. Uh, In the 1830s, Thomas Carlyle writes this book just called The French Revolution, came out in 1837. Thomas Carlyle is a kind of Scottish conservative historian. And this to this day is probably, well, arguably the most influential book on this period in the English speaking world. And in some ways, it's a very good book. Uh, Thomas Carlyle is a very interesting writer. He can really turn a phrase. He has a very 19th century uh, British prose style. It sounds kind of alien today. It's a little bit, uh, I don't know, Latinate, but there's, there's an interesting turn of phrase on basically every page. Problem with Thomas Carlyle is that he makes a lot of stuff up. You know, you use the word, use the phrase ecstatic truth earlier in the episode and that's kind of what he's doing. Like, Thomas Carlyle's history of the French Revolution is kind of, you know, an ecstatic document. It's more than it is a serious history. So, you know, the sort of Anglosphere received wisdom about this period, Burke and Carlyle are two of the big things that it's resting on. But then in the 20th century, particularly, you know, from about 1950 onward, the French Revolution and uh, the Napoleonic period and particular episodes like, you know, the period of Jacobin governance during the French Revolution the radical phase of the French Revolution, 1793-1794. Uh, These episodes are kind of reinterpreted, re-engaged with according to kind of uh, presentist concerns, namely those of liberals during the Cold War. So that's how you get the idea that the French Revolution is sort of the prototype for the twin evils of the of the 20th century. It's, it's, it's how you get uh, Hitler, it's how you get Stalin. It's mass democracy, it's uh, enlightened rationalism taken to its, you know, dangerous but logical conclusion, you know. 
know, it's it's the masses being untethered from their, you know, deference to elites, which actually we need for the stability of society. You know, the masses will always be tempted by dangerous utopian ideologies. And, uh, you know, so that, that was very on people's minds during the Cold War. And the French Revolution became one of the major sort of lightning rods in that whole debate. There's a very good book out right now from the Yale historian uh, Samuel Moyne. He has a book right now that uh, I would recommend to people if you're interested in this stuff. It's called Liberalism Against Itself. And it's basically about how the Cold War kind of mutilated the liberal tradition and how a lot of liberals after 1945, you know, liberal intellectuals basically decided that, well, all the egalitarian parts of our philosophy, you know, those that might have been found during the French Revolution, those are actually bad, okay? (laughs) What liberalism is about is defending property rights and defending the political center against extremes of all kinds, which are really, really bad. So then in the 1970s and 80s, there's a French historian who's, you know, a kind of backstory you might expect, an ex-Stalinist named Francois Furet, uh, who comes up with what is kind of the dominant kind of revisionist interpretation, sort of towards the tail end of the Cold War of this period. And it's basically the sort of Cold War inflected one I've just described. So that's all a very long-winded way of saying that Ridley Scott did not do a lot of homework ahead of making this movie. But watching it, that seems to be the sediment that this film is basically resting on. And here I want to come back to this episode of Napoleon firing on the uh, the crowd early in the movie during the uh, the Royalist Uprising of 1795. Now, I bring this up for a few reasons. One, because I think it is probably the most explicit incidence of just sort of raw, unthinking brutality that the movie shows. Like, what could be worse than firing grape shot into a crowd of unarmed people? I also bring it up because it's described in a passage I'm going to read from Thomas Carlyle's The French Revolution, one of the most famous passages, possibly in 19th century English prose, and, you know, a pretty good passage in many ways, but also a very inaccurate one. Now, I said I wasn't going to be too pedantic on this episode about historical inaccuracy, but I do think the scene on 13 Vendemier is a pretty good example of how if Ridley Scott had just been 15% more interested in history, A, he could have made a better and more exciting movie, and B, he would have made a movie that was probably less uh, politically reactionary, and which I might have liked more as a result. So the actual story here is that there was a royalist uprising in 1795, as the film says. This is after the overthrow of the Jacobins. This was after the Thermidorian coup. But France is still a republic. You know, sort of centrist Republicans are in power. And there's a mob of uh, about 25,000 armed royalists, many of whom were actually soldiers. So trained soldiers with royalist sympathies who were teaming up with people who were trying to reinstate the monarchy. Now, Napoleon Bonaparte was asked by Paul Barra, who is uh, fleetingly depicted in the movie, at least, who was kind of Napoleon's patron at the time, to basically put down the uprising and, uh, you know, defend the government. So uh, Napoleon says yes, uh, and then he approaches a handsome cavalry officer named Joaquin Murat, who is later a marshal of the French Empire and King of Naples, a very important uh, figure from this period. I don't think he's depicted in the movie at all. But he asks Murat to go and get some cannons that are on the edge of the city. This isn't depicted in the film, this is just what actually happened. Because, you know, the uh, Republican National Guard are outnumbered, you know, five, six to one by this mob of, like, fanatics right-wing royalists, and Napoleon knows they have a better chance of succeeding in putting down the uprising if they have artillery. So Marat rides with a squadron of dragoons or something out to the edge of Paris. He gets there before the royalists, who are also looking for the cannons, and then there's an hours-long game of cat and mouse through the streets of Paris as he slinks back to the center of town with these cannons, trying to avoid the royalists, who are stalking uh, his column of, uh, of cavalry the whole time. Now, I think that's pretty exciting. That would have been cool to see in a movie, but 
but I realize Ridley Scott is pressed for time. Anyway, Bonaparte, with the cannons in hand, manages to uh, pretty handily put down this uprising, which again was a right-wing uprising by fanatical royalists whose singular objective was to destroy France's uh, fleeting experiment with republicanism. So, you know, we don't read history to root for a particular side, but if there's a side to root for in this one, uh, well, I know which side I'm rooting for. But so the episode is interesting because the way Scott portrays it in the movie can really be traced all the way back, not just to how Thomas Carlyle talks about it in the book, published in 1837, but also how royalist propaganda and how British propaganda described it at the time. Because, you know, the royalists whose uprising had been put down, who'd failed to uh, put a Bourbon king back on the throne, you know, they tried to spin it as like, oh yeah, the fanatical revolutionaries put down this like peaceful protest or whatever. Absolutely no serious historian thinks that that's what happened. So that scene to me, more than any other in the movie, is emblematic of why this film fails, both as an effort to render history in an interesting way, uh, which, you know, it fails completely at that because, as we've said, Ridley Scott's interested in history. But secondly, how it just fails as kind of entertainment because... Scott is so uninterested in history that he just leaves out well-established facts that might actually be pretty exciting to see on screen, like uh, Joaquin Murat's mission to go and retrieve the cannon. And then all you've got left at the end is just this kind of, yeah, very English, historically illiterate depiction of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars that's just resting on, yeah, various bits of, like, conservative received wisdom that uh, someone with Ridley Scott's class and national background, who's probably been having certain kinds of discussions with his his liberal friends since 2016. That's all you're left with, and I think it sucks. How could you care so little for me and my feelings? You are a selfish little pig. You think so lowly of me. Before we go, this being a free episode, I of course have to make brief, brief mention of the Michael and Us Patreon. Patreon.com slash Michael and Us. Five Yankee dollars per month. A few of the recent Patreon-exclusive episodes have included discussions of the recent Oppenheimer, as well as, for some reason, Robert Altman's Popeye, uh, just a movie that I like. Also a note about our $10 per month superdelegate tier, in addition to being able to nominate movies and vote on uh, a winner every month, uh, we've introduced a new privilege in the $10 tier, a monthly Q&A episode. So superdelegates will be able to submit questions, and we will answer them in an episode, uh, a short episode that's exclusive to superdelegate subscribers. Uh, but listen, what you really need to know is patreon.com slash Michael and us, rate and review us on your podcast app of choice, uh, we'll be forever in your debt. All right, so as promised, uh, I'm going to read now uh, to send us out a selection from Thomas Carlyle's uh, 1837 History of the French Revolution, uh, specifically from Book 3, Chapter 7, the famous whiff of grapeshot passage in which Carlyle, uh, if not uh, invents, then certainly popularizes the modern myth of the events of 13 Vendemiaire, in which, as I've said, the badly outnumbered French National Guard under the command of uh, Napoleon Bonaparte put down a violent insurrection by armed royalists. Uh, now, Carlyle, you know, he is a bit of a paradox because, you know, as you'll see, he's a pretty incredible writer. Even if his style is somewhat anachronistic to modern ears, there is a tenor to his prose, uh, a rhythm uh, and a momentum that I think is really quite remarkable, even if as history, what he's describing here 
is uh, really pretty divorced from what actually occurred. Uh, so, you know, he's making up quotes, he's inserting his own reactionary interpretation into things, and he's really offering us a, a myth rather than a strictly accurate historical account. Still, I mean, to give the man his due, not many of us can claim to have written a passage so compelling and so memorable that it continues to be you know, remembered so well nearly two centuries after it was first written and published that's, you know, so influential, so formative to how people see a particular historical event that, you know, a version of it or a version informed by it is making its way into, you know, a major blockbuster like 2023's Napoleon. So I'll, I'll begin in a second, but just as a further caveat, uh, don't worry too much about names and places and such, or even anachronistic terms that appear here and there. Toxin, uh, T-O-C-S-I-N is one that I had to look up. Um, it means alarm or signal. Don't put too much stock either in the way he uses this incident in his narrative to signify the end of the French Revolution. That's not really accurate either, even if it is a compelling way to kind of, you know, bracket the end of the passage. Just sit back and relax into Carlyle's prose, you know, proof positive that reactionary takes on the French Revolution can still be both engaging and entertaining, uh, a fact that seems to have eluded uh, Mr. Ridley Scott. So here we go, uh, a whiff of grape shot. Some call for Bara to be made commandant, he conquered in Thermidor. Some, what is more to the purpose, bethink them of the citizen Bonaparte, unemployed artillery officer who took Toulon, a man of head, a man of action. Bara is named commandant's cloak, this young artillery officer is named commandant. He was in the gallery at the moment and heard it. He withdrew some half-hour to consider with himself. After a half-hour of grim, compressed considering, to be or not to be, he answers, yea. And now, a man of head being at the center of it, the whole matter gets vital. Swift to the camp of Sablon, to secure the artillery, there are not twenty men guarding it. A swift adjutant, Mirat is the name of him, gallops, gets thither some minutes within time. For Lapelche was also on march that way, the cannon are ours. And now beset this post and beset that, rapid and firm, at Wicked of the Louvre, in Cul-de-Sac Dauphin, in Rue Saint-Honneur, from Pont Neuf all along the North Keys, southward to the Pont Cidevant Royal, rank round the sanctuary of the Tuileries, a ring of steel discipline. Let every gunner have his match burning, and all men stand to their arms. Thus there is permanent session through the night, and thus at sunrise of the morrow, there is seen sacred insurrection once again, vessel of state laboring on the bar and tumultuous sea all round her, beating general, arming and sounding, not ringing toxin, for we have left no toxin but our own in a pavilion of unity. It is an imminence of shipwreck for the whole world to gaze at. Frightfully she labors, that poor ship, within cable length of port, huge peril for her. However, she has a man at the helm, insurgent messages received and not received, messenger admitted blindfolded, counsel and counter-counsel the poor ship labors. Vendemir 13th, year 4. Curious enough of all days, it is the 5th day of October, eve of the anniversary of that march, six years ago, by sacred rite of insurrection we are got thus far. Lepelche has seized the church of Saint-Roch, has seized the Pont Neuf, our Paquette there retreating without fire. Stray shots fall from Le Pelche, rattle down on the very Tuileries staircase. On the other hand, woman advance disheveled, shrieking, Peace! Le Pelche behind them waving its hat in sign that we shall fraternize. Steady! 
The artillery officer is steady as bronze, can, if need be, be quick as lightning. He sends 800 muskets with ball cartridges to the convention itself. Honorable members shall act with these in case of extremity, whereat they look grave enough. Four of the afternoon is struck. Lapelche, making nothing by messengers, by fraternity or hat-waving, bursts out along the southern quay Voltaire, along streets and passages, treble quick, in huge, veritable onslaught. Whereupon, thou bronze artillery officer, fire, say the bronze lips, and roar and thunder, roar and again roar, continual, volcano-like, goes his great gun, in the cul-de-sac Dauphin, against the church of Saint-Roch, go his great guns on the Pont Royal, go all his great guns, blow to air some two hundred men, mainly about the church of Saint-Roch. Le Pelche cannot stand such horseplay, no sectioner can stand it, the forty thousand yield on all sides, scour towards covert. Some hundred or so of them gathered at the Théâtre de la République, but, he says, a few shells dislodged them. It was all finished at six. The ship is over the bar then. Free she bounds shoreward. Amid shouting and vivats, Citoyen Bonaparte is named General of the Interior by acclamation. Quelled sections have to disarm in such humor as they may. Sacred right of insurrection is gone forever. The Sayez constitution can disembark itself and begin marching. The miraculous convention ship has got to land, and is there, shall we figuratively say, changed, as epic ships are wont, into a kind of sea nymph, never to sail more, to roam the waste azure, a miracle in history. It is false, says Napoleon, that we fired first with blank charge. It had been a waste of life to do that. Most false. The firing was with sharp and sharpest shot. To all men it was plain that here there was no sport. The rabbits and plaints of St. Rock Church show splintered by it to this hour. Singular, in old Broglie's time, six years ago, this whiff of grape shot was promised, but it could not be given then, could not have profited then. Now, however, the time has come for it and the man, and behold you have it and the thing we specifically call French Revolution is blown into space by it and become a thing that was. Not before.